You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to again be joined by two close friends from the Kaiser Family Foundation, Jennifer Cates and Josh Michaud. Jennifer is the Senior Vice President for Global Health and HIV Policy, and Josh is the Associate Director for Global Health Policy. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Good to be here. Okay, Josh, I'm going to ask you to kick things off with a bit of a scene setter. If you could just give us sort of the highlights, the top line picture here in the United States in terms of vaccinations. Where are we today? Current projections into the spring and summer. What the supply outlook looks like and expansion of vaccine sites and the major uncertainties that are there right now. And a little bit on what's unfolding in this massive American rescue plan. That's a lot, but just give us sort of the quick top line pieces. Sure, sure. Happy to. Yeah. So, you know, you can look at this from the supply side and then from the vaccine administration and distribution side. So starting with the supply side, the U.S. by, you know, all measures has greatly ramped up its supply of vaccines. And so already we vaccinated 93 million Americans with at least one dose, over 50 million Americans fully vaccinated. And that means one third of the adult population has been at least partially vaccinated here. So the number of doses that we've received from Pfizer have been in the order of 90 million, Moderna 85 million, J&J 5 million or so. And then the coming weeks, we'll see even increasing numbers. So by the end of March, just a few days away from this interview, we're supposed to have had 120 million doses of Pfizer, 100 million doses of Moderna, 20 million doses of J&J. So you put that all together, And that's about 130 million or more people, 50% of the eligible population that we have vaccines for. So that's great news. And then even beyond the end of March, you know, we have an additional 200 million doses from Pfizer and Moderna each that have been on order. Another 80 million doses of J&J, not to mention 100 million doses of Novavax and uh, 300 million doses of AstraZeneca that have already been purchased by the U.S. And we expect to see movement on the authorization, perhaps, of those vaccines. So all told, by the end of June, we're looking at having you know, enough doses to vaccinate you know, the, the U.S. population twice over. So certainly supply is looking very, very robust at this point. And when it comes to distribution, you know, early on, we had uh, very few distribution points. We are focused specifically on certain high-risk populations, of course, and we we're vaccinating on the order of hundreds of thousands of people. But in recent weeks, we've seen numbers of people vaccinated in the over 3 million a day. So that has come because we've expanded the supply and also the distribution points to go beyond just you know, the hospitals and and nursing homes that were originally part of the distribution plan. And now we have many, many distribution points, including private pharmacies, mass vaccination sites, state and local uh, vaccination sites. And that continues to expand over time and will continue to expand. Particularly, this distribution to pharmacies has been really important in expanding the access of people to, to the vaccines. So, the outlook is is very good. As you know, the president set initially a goal of 100 million 
Americans vaccinated within 100 days and has revised that now to 200 million Americans within 100 days so that by the end of April, 200 million Americans receiving at least one dose. Looks like we might be able to reach that with this expansion in supply and distribution. So very, very good signs. Of course, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, nothing is perfect and there's lots of ways that we could improve the way we're distributing vaccines in the United States. So, but Josh, before we get into all that, I want to ask you, all this is good news, certainly. But, you know, as you said, a a third of American adults have had at least one shot. Our friend, Dr. Peter Hotez, says that this is all good, but people are really starting to relax. And, you know, you're seeing this, you know, across many, many states where, you know, restrictions are being relaxed, but also just people are, are starting to, you know, let their guard down. Are we in danger because of that? I think there is some danger of that. And we've seen as vaccine supplies have increased that state leaders and governors have been taking steps to relax the social distancing restrictions that had been in place. And at the same time, we're seeing in some places increases in case numbers because When you look at who we're vaccinating in the United States, we started with the most vulnerable, which makes eminent sense, but and and sort of worked our way down in terms of ages as we go. And soon we will, in many places, open up eligibility to all adults, but we're not quite there everywhere yet. But there are lots of people who are unvaccinated in those younger age groups. Uh, and those are the people that have historically driven transmission and are at risk of continuing to drive transmission, especially as these restrictions come down. So I think you're starting to see evidence of that already in a number of states, you know, in Michigan, certainly and in many of the northeastern states, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, sort of an upturn in the number of cases that we're seeing. And more and more, these are being driven by younger and younger age groups, which haven't been vaccinated. And, you know, if that continues, there will be pockets of unvaccinated people, at-risk people who can be infected, and we could see an increase in the number of hospitalizations, number of deaths, which we're seeing in very localized parts of the United States now, and that could expand to other locations as well as we go forward. So are we seeing a, a rapid expansion of the kind of detection and response capacities that we're going to need twinned with this in terms of testing, surveillance, contact tracing, ability to isolate? Because what you just described is, yes, we're going to have, we're, we're on a very rapidly expanding vaccination effort, which is very promising, but we're going to continue to have outbreaks that we need to respond to. Yeah, I, I don't think we, we are seeing the other stuff ramp up the way it needs to. I mean, I think the good news here is that even a month ago, a month and a half ago, if we were having this conversation, Josh and I would probably say, we hope there's going to be enough supply of vaccine for all people in the U.S. And now we can confidently say that there will be. That's a huge, huge change. And these are, the vaccines are so effective that we are already starting to reap the benefits of this. But it is a race against time. And that's the race is to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible in addition, like as we've learned from every other outbreak and certainly from HIV, an area that, you know, we've all worked in, you can't keep, you can't just focus on one intervention. I mean, vaccines are amazing and, and they are going to be the big ticket item here, but you still need to have the other things, testing, contact tracing, social distancing, all of these other elements that together create a response. And even though there's more funding available to ramp up those other things. I'm not sure it's happened yet. We haven't necessarily seen evidence of that yet. And that is a concern because it's too easy for people to forget that we need all of those elements. 
Yeah, you mentioned that there was an additional you know, funding package, the American Rescue Package, which recently passed, which included a number of elements focused on the areas that, that Jen mentioned. So there is money for vaccine distribution. There is money for increasing vaccine confidence. There is you know, almost $50 billion for contact tracing, surveillance, and mitigation efforts, and ramping up testing, importantly. But I don't know if we've started to see that. It hasn't gone out yet. <laughs> the, yeah, it hasn't really filtered through the system yet. And so this is really, you know, a, a forward looking set of activities that haven't yet ramped up, meaning, you know, we haven't really scaled up testing, for example, at uh, schools and, you know, in the community and access to rapid testing, for example, to the level that I think that was envisioned with this support that's provided in the rescue package. So more hopefully is coming on those activities. But yeah, it, we, we, we haven't seen the massive scale up to go alongside the vaccine distribution scale up to the extent many would like to see. Thank you. So do you guys think that the country is getting a little ahead of itself? I mean, you know, we're certainly everybody feels much more optimistic. There's a lot of supply, like you guys said, things are starting to work, but there's a major equity issue, you know, which we want to talk to you guys about. But also, you know, we think it's going to be better by the summer, but that could really get screwed up by behaviors that happen this spring. If you know, the right communication isn't put forward that, you know, you still need to social distance, you still need to wear a mask. And, you know, we were all really troubled that nobody asked President Biden even one question about that at his news conference. You know, everything was focused on other issues and not what the central issue of our time is, which is, you know, obviously the pandemic. You know, I, I we are definitely at risk. You know, it's this I irony where we have this much more optimistic moment and are at a much better place than we were just a few months ago and, and can see maybe the light at the end of the tunnel. But, you know, human nature is such that people are getting back to, you know, they're tired. We're all tired and it's a great risk. And I think it's a really big communication challenge to help people understand that we can't let up totally yet. Well, of course, change, some minor changes maybe could be made, you know, sort of the CDCs, if your, your grandparents can see their grandkids once they're vaccinated, that's important to let people know and trying to find that balance as we go forward is going to be a hard one because people by their nature and then sort of the politics coming in are going to push that envelope every single time. And, you know, that could really make or break what the summer looks like for sure. Yeah. And, and I'd, I'd only add that, you know, if we look to other countries and their vaccination experience, we can see some hard lessons to be learned in places where you saw really strong declines in, in case numbers going alongside with increases in vaccinations, and I'm thinking of you know Israel and the United Kingdom in particular, they, they had fairly strong lockdowns to go along with their vaccine efforts. So even Israel, which at the point of having vaccinated fully 50% of its population, continued to see sort of a plateau in their cases, and it didn't really start to come down until after they you know, had vaccinated, you know, 60, 70% of their population fully, you're seeing that there are limits to some population immunity, not full herd immunity level population immunity. And the biggest sort of warning, I think, probably comes from a country like Chile, which has ramped up vaccinations faster than the United States, yet has in the past few weeks seen increasing numbers of cases and increasing deaths. And so you can't rely on vaccines alone, as Jen said. Thanks. Let's talk about equity. I mean, the equity issue has many dimensions to it. You can slice it in a number of different ways, but as a concern, as an overriding concern, it really suffuses 
the doctrine, the rhetoric, the reality of implementation around U.S. vaccination efforts. There's a couple of different ways we can look at it. There's, we've been talking for a long time about the disparities, the black population, brown, Hispanic, Native American. That has been a central focus for, for some time. We're now looking at what happens within states where you have wealthier versus poorer counties, weaker infrastructure, weaker changes of political leadership. We're looking at possibility of geographic patterns where the South, a band in the South may look different. The coastal areas may look different versus the interior. And then we have the issue that I think you were hinting at earlier that the drive to go faster and reach scale on vaccination, which has become overwhelming, may carry a price in terms of equity. I mean, equity is expensive and difficult and requires extra effort, extra attention, extra cost in order to achieve. So, Jen, why don't you kick things off? What, what, what can we say about how the equity agenda is unfolding now? What do we know and what can we see? You guys are on the ground watching what's happening and trying to reach some judgments about all of these different issues of equity. There's a lot to be said. And I think the, there was attention to equity being paid last year and in discussions, you know, in planning and just in talking about the need to achieve equity and vaccine distribution because of all of the issues you highlighted. Where are we today? We haven't done it. In fact, if you look at the data, we've been collecting the data weekly at KFF, going to each state's website and trying to see how they're doing, looking at race ethnicity data, for example, for vaccinations compared to representation in the population. And what we find is that in general, Black people and Hispanic people are being vaccinated much less than their white counterparts and less than their representation in the population of cases of deaths. So it's not going well yet from, from that equity perspective. We also, CDC just released some new data on Friday night looking at county level variables, and we'll be putting out something momentarily, I think, on this. But us and others who started to look at the data have found that counties that have higher poverty and higher insurance rates and have a score high, let's say, on social vulnerability measures are less likely to be vaccinated than their counterparts. So basically, the, the very counties that you think should, where there should be extra effort because they're more vulnerable or more affected are not being reached at the same level. And there's lots of reasons for that, but it's a setback. And it doesn't, you know, as, as the country races ahead, which I think we all, we all know has to happen and eligibility is about to open in most states within a few weeks, if equity concerns are pushed aside or not, uh, states don't double down on them, we'll be in a bad situation in terms of achieving the immunity we need and also reaching the populations that have to be included. I think what, what we're seeing is that some states are, are playing a pretty active role looking at this, while others aren't. The federal government certainly is playing a much more active role this year in this administration than the last administration and proactively looking out across the country and trying to address equity. But this is going to probably probably be the key aspect of this rollout that's going to become the most important in the next few months, in addition to reaching those who, who have issues about getting vaccinated or are more reluctant. But really, equity, I think, is the big, big issue here. What can you say about the good performing and the least least well-performing? Yeah, so it, it, it's on the equity side, it, one of the challenges in, in making judgments about states is that the data just aren't robust enough. And it, it's something that, you know, we've, we've pointed out many times that having more detailed data available by state on different characteristics would, would be quite helpful to making these assessments. I think some of it's starting to come now, but we have not 
been able to, to judge states that way. We, you know, most states are not doing a good job on equity measures. So I can leave it at that. Another measure that we've looked at, which isn't about race, ethnicity equity, but is also is more about the geographic component that you mentioned, Steve. You know, there's a group of states that have consistently ranked at the bottom when it comes to doses uh, administered per population, per 100,000 population, the percent of their population that they've vaccinated, the percent of their 18 and over that they vaccinated. And a lot of them are in the South. Not all of them, but a lot of them are in the, in the South. And, you know, there's complicated reasons, but I'll just, I'll just mention a few of the states. So Alabama, Georgia, Texas, Arkansas, South Carolina, Mississippi, Tennessee, to name a few, have, have, are at the bottom in terms of these measures. And what does that mean for where we're headed? And the states that are at the top, that have consistently been at the top, you know, the Alaskas, the South Dakotas, the North Dakotas, Maine, uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut, they tend to be, on oh, West Virginia, there's reasons why. I mean, they tend to be smaller states. They have more rural areas. Maybe they've been able to reach more people. But there's some something going on geographically that has created these, these sort of the top states and the bottom states. So the pace is not the same across the country. Who's spending their time inside the government trying to figure out, at the federal level, trying to figure out how we can straighten this out across the states and make sure that there is some geographical equity? I, mean, I think this is the job of the COVID task force at the White House and, and frankly, NHHS that, that has to look across the states and look at geographic issues, look at equity around race, ethnicity, equity around poverty, equity, equity around, you know, 65 older, because there's, there's probably some differences there. So as you imply, it has to be the federal government. And it, it, that's the White House role, I'd say, in the, in the HHS role in doing and figuring that out. They've set aside doses to address to be able to address equity to some extent. And actually, that's a strategy some states have used as well, where they've set aside a portion of their doses to be made available to hard hit populations in their state, or they've used a, like a zip code targeting approach. So they've set aside doses for people living in certain areas, certain outreach techniques. So there, there are things that can be done. And I think the federal government is, is looking into those as well. But if the leadership of certain states really don't make this a priority... How much can the federal government shape the outcomes, do you think? Right. That's the key question, isn't it? I mean, it's the biggest, one of the biggest take-homes from this pandemic experience that those of us, you know, working in public health have known forever is that this, this sort of division between federal and state and local public health authority, which may, you know, we know there's a whole history of our country and why that exists. And we, we see how on a daily basis and in normal times that can create some challenges and friction, but in a pandemic, it's deadly. And I think part of the challenge is literally the Constitution has set this up. So, you know, changing that is probably want to take that off the table. So then what else can be done? And the federal government has various tools it can use, carrots and sticks to some extent. But it, it, as things are, are set up now, it has limits to what it can do. It certainly could do more than it has, let's say, last year. And it's, we're, we're seeing that with this administration. I don't know, Josh, if you want to add anything to that. Jen, it's even gotten down to the, the county level within states. I, I mean, in Maryland, for instance, you know, I, I think someone told Steve recently that the hardest place in America to get a shot is Montgomery County, Maryland. <laughs> and, you know, which makes absolutely no sense. And, you know, so you're looking at one of the, you know, states that should be on top of this. And you're looking at, you know, perhaps the county within that state that really should be on top of this. And it hasn't been. So you multiply that by, you know, 50 states 
you got a real problem. And, you know, some of the states aren't receptive to federal assistance. Yeah, I mean, I'd only add that these are all major issues that, that we're identifying and agree with Jen that this is this equity question continues to be and will continue to be the main concern as we roll out more vaccines. I do think there is some sort of a pivot coming soon. And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, because of the supply increases that we're likely to see continue and the additional funding from the rescue plan. And that means that we are going to get to the point where even as states expand eligibility, we're going to start to see a point where we have more vaccine doses than we have people who want to get them. Now, that might be about you know month, six weeks away, who knows. But at that point is when you start to see uh, the real effect of starting to reach out to those who are on the fence or those who aren't you know able to access for whatever reason and efforts to really start to ramp up. So I know there is efforts and works, federal and also state level efforts to work Work through through community organizations uh, and through targeted you know communication campaigns to really get people who aren't aware or, or for some reason feel that there's some you know barrier to them getting vaccines to really start to break down those barriers and reach those populations that have which might be a higher concentration of those folks in the states that are having a hard time right now. Yeah, Josh. Before we jump into the whole question around hesitancy and refusal and what do we know. On the top and bottom category of states, what can we say about Florida? <laughs> well, Florida is a is a real unusual case. You know, how to explain Florida in general, it's hard. How to explain Florida's uh, distribution effort, it's also hard. It's complicated. It's a big state. A lot of things going on there. So, uh, you know, I, I'd say they were at the forefront of o- opening up eligibility compared to some states, perhaps. Just by age, not by other factors. Exactly. They lagged every other state and in, in opening vaccine eligibility, any other group, but people 65 and older. Yeah. So they, they kind of eschewed the focus on, you know, high risk populations, essential workers and, and people with high risk conditions. And even though they opened up by age, you know, they've had a fairly slow, I'd say, not near the top, not at the very bottom either, but but it's been a real mixed bag there. So I don't know. Maybe there are others. Maybe Jen has more information about the specifics of Florida, but it's been it's been a complicated picture there. Yeah. So Florida is pretty much close in the bottom pack when it comes to share of the population vaccinated. It's middle of the pack if you just look at the 65 plus. So even though it really focused on the older population, it still hasn't achieve the same levels of vaccination there as other places. So that strategy maybe didn't work. So hard to know what's going on. I mean, they had, there was some questions about how the the distribution system in the state has been complicated. And they just, as Andrew was saying, they're a place where each county was sort of left to do its own thing. And so in each county in Florida had a different signup system. And, you know, you put that together with lots of older folks who may not be as savvy in trying to figure that out. And it created a lot of frustration. Stepping back a little bit, the whole idea behind CDC and ASIP recommending prioritization was the only reason that that was ever done was because of supply limitations, not because CDC or any other group felt some were more deserving than others. It was truly that we're not going to have enough vaccine. So let's start to, you know, address the big problems and, and save lives and keep our country going. That was the goal there and, and equity goals. So when DeSantis and some other governors just decided right off the bat to open up their vaccination to 65 and older. They had barely any vaccine to to do that with. And so they faced a huge challenge of backlog and a lot of people who are technically eligible not being able to get vaccinated. And I think that's created a situation in many states that did that 
where it's taken them a long time to get to other groups. Florida just opened up to other groups recently. It was the last state to, to open up to other groups. So, you know, each state has had problems. It's not to single out any one state here. It's, it's that this has been a hard endeavor. And we're talking about, you know, differences of, you know, maybe this state did a little better than that yeah. state. I mean, it's been, it's been challenging, but I think there certainly are a group of states that have seemed to, to really jump on this and do a pretty good job. Now, we know that hesitancy and refusal remains a huge barrier and uncertainty if we're, as we're trying to drive towards this pivot point that, that we've talked about, whether that's 75, 80% coverage of the adult population of eligible 260 million adults, or however we define that. Tell us, what's the trend lines? What's the basic trend lines? I think the trend lines are good. I think the messages that I want, think are important to get out there is the majority of people want to get vaccinated. Or have been, you know, if you put together, want to get vaccinated and have been vaccinated, that's the majority of people. In addition, there's another group that's the sort of wait and see folks, right? The people that, for a variety of reasons, are not so sure yet. They want to see that their friends have gotten vaccinated or family or their doctor. They, you know, have other concerns, but they, they're a movable group and that group is shrinking. They're more, they're more and more going into the, yeah, I want to get vaccinated group. So that's all good. What would you say the wait and see is? It was 30% before. Is it a little less than that now? The total of the wait and sees are 20, 22%, right? So it's less. And the already got vaccine or want it as soon as I can get it is 55%. So 55 and 22, you know, you're, we're approaching 80% of people in the country. And we keep seeing that shift. That's, it's shifting in the right direction. Now, there is still a group of a small group. I think it's important. We spend a lot of attention on them. The people who say, I'm not going to do this at all unless it's required mm-hmm. or I'm just not going to do it, period. And so the I'm not going to do this at all group is 15 percent. Mm-hmm. And there's an additional 7 percent. that are like only if it's required. So, you know, that's I think there were, there's challenges there. Right. The people that are just outright don't want to get vaccinated. I don't know how movable they are. So it's going to be a question for, you know, which messengers, which messages, when, how, you know, who they are. We, we from our surveys, we have a pretty good sense of who those groups are. But the, I think an outstanding question is what is going to motivate them to change? So who are those groups and do they need direct messaging and targeting from, I mean, we don't see a lot of public service announcements on television about getting vaccinated and we don't see a lot of our cultural leaders talking about it either. What what needs to happen here? Yeah, I mean, the so from our surveys, the 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 folks that are most likely to say I don't want to get vaccinated, they tend they're Republicans. They tend to live in rural areas. Tends to be people who are a little younger, like the thirty to forty nine year old group is bigger than the other age groups. The share that are actually now black and white is kind of on par with each other. So maybe that race there was an earlier race difference, but that seems to be dissipating. But really, it's rural Republicans. <laughs> and so I think us, our group and others are really trying to figure out what is, you know, again, who are the right messengers? Where do you deliver that message? And that's there's a lot of research going on. I don't think there's definitive answers yet. Do you blanket the airwaves with vaccine messages? I think from what I what I understand, the Biden administration is not going to do that. They're going to do a much more targeted approach. It, this is going to be a bit of an experiment to figure out what's going to work. Do you think the Republican Party is going to get on board? I mean, former President Trump spoken twice recently on this issue, sometimes in a somewhat equivocal way, but nonetheless. But it seems to me that one answer is the Republican leadership ranks and elected officials across the board in Congress and state level 
local community level need to stand up and, and, and be more motivated to speak to those that trust them. Are we seeing any evidence of that, do you think? I don't know from the political side whether that we're seeing a lot of evidence from sort of national Republican political leaders standing up and making a strong case for, for vaccination. That might change going forward as we get, it becomes more and more obvious that this is a group that is a holdout when it comes to vaccines when they don't necessarily need to be and they remain at risk. But I think it also speaks to the uh, need for sort of this targeted approach where, where you're not having a massive communication campaign or, you know, Anthony Fauci out there on the airwaves saying get vaccinated is not going to be a resident message for this particular group, for example. So you need to do a much more targeted campaign and the you know, additional funding and efforts coming down from the federal government can channel those uh, efforts in a way that is more productive to address the specific groups and the specific concerns that we're seeing raised by those groups. And in our latest polling, I think we've started to test what are the messages that start to convince different groups of people? And it's really sort of meeting the person where their concerns are and hearing their concerns and addressing those concerns. So different people have different concerns. For some, it's safety of the vaccines, and they're not convinced that these are safe. So if you can present information or alleviate their concerns on that front, it does a lot. Other people, you know, don't make the link between getting vaccinated and then resuming, you know, their lives uh, and being able to restart the economy, or maybe that's an important consideration for them. And so making them, you know, see that that is the ticket for, you know, hugging grandchildren or whatever it might be. So different people respond to different messages and you just have to find out which one's going to work for which group. It seems like a really difficult task if we're trying to craft individualized messages for individual communities, you know, throughout the country. And it's all, you know, within a party that, you know, its leadership isn't taking the lead on it, what what needs to happen here? Well, it can take place outside of the party, you know, if structure, although it would be helpful to have sort of the political operatives working in unison. So really, we're talking about other vehicles, other media outlets, other uh, messengers, other than the political leaders, if they are not you know, willing and able to, to support the same message. Josh, on that point, I mean, when Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster, pulled together, this was like two weeks ago, Saturday, I think it was, pulled together 20 conservative voters who, who were saying they really didn't want to take up the vaccine. And he had this focus group exchange with them. And it was, it was very effective and it's very r revealing. Of those 20 people, by the end of an engagement with them, 19 of them had changed their minds and were favorably disposed. And they, they, they seem to be a strong consensus. They didn't really even hear from their political leadership. And they didn't want to hear it from the social media. They didn't want to hear from the traditional media. They wanted straight talk from people that they trusted and respected as professional experts. And so it's it's quite interesting. It was Tom Frieden was one of the folks speaking to them, right? Mm -hmm. Seven years as CDC director under Obama, but spoke very clearly and succinctly to their concerns. And they were like, yeah, I get that. Now... They also, some of them said, well, Tony Fauci, he's too political. You know, it was like he had been targeted too much by pre former President Trump and, and his supporters that he was somehow carrying the stigma. Mm -hmm. But it did show that an innovative and, and motivated individual like Frank Luntz could really reveal things and engage people in a quite fruitful and constructive way. Yeah, I'd say that, you know, vaccine hesitancy researchers and, and, and academics and people who are practitioners in this area 
have known this forever, that it's not going to be one size fits all when you try and, and get people to understand the importance of vaccines. And crafting these messages is going to be as important as finding the right messengers for these these messages. And it may come down to, you know, the local doctors having the information they need to make the arguments to the people that they see about the importance of vaccines, which is really going to sway some people. Or it's going to be someone who, you know, is a local religious leader who, you know, makes the same arguments that are based on fact and dispel some of the concerns. That Those are the kinds of routes, I think, probably more constructive where people understand the concerns of the communities that, you know, they have most direct contact with and are able to just, you know, provide the, the information that can dispel some of the concerns. And, but I think something you're, you're, you're getting at, though, is that that's a very intensive effort. It is. Yeah, it really is. It's a very intensive effort. But if we think about it, we're also we have shots in arms. There's also a, you have to there's going to be an interaction there as well. So, you know, I, I think ideally we want to capitalize on, on those at the same time, if we can find a way to sort of bring the vaccinators a little bit closer to where the, the messengers are. For these groups, we might we might be able to do it more you know more quickly. But it's going to be it's a it's a very intensive effort. So, guys, at the end of the day, though, you know this is a free country, and people have the right to do what they want to do and not do. What happens if you know there's a critical mass of people in this who fall into this category who just say you know I, I don't believe in it, I don't want to do it. You know that this is this isn't new because they were anti-vaccine before COVID and, and they're certainly going to continue to be anti-vaccine after COVID and they just don't believe in it. It's been something that's been embedded in their ideology in one way or another for a long time. What happens if their outreach efforts to these people fail and they don't get vaccinated and there's a you know pretty substantial chunk of Americans who aren't vaccinated? What happens to the rest of us? Well, you know, you're starting to get at this question of what level do we need to be at in terms of vaccinations in order to achieve herd immunity? There's, as Jen said, you know, some core of 10, 12 percent or so of people in the United States, adults who are not interested in getting vaccinated for, for a variety of reasons, but they're just saying, no, we don't want to get vaccinated. So if you say, you know, let's just say conservatively that 15% of adults are unwilling to get vaccinated, putting aside the question of whether we can mandate vaccines, then we're at 85% of adults vaccinated if everything goes right. Is that enough to interrupt transmission entirely? And it's hard to say. It's right at the borderline of what would be possible. We're now if you include kids who are, of course, not part of the current vaccination effort in, in our population estimate, then, you know, we're, we're not at what many would call herd immunity levels. So that would open the door for, for continued transmission. So vaccinating kids would help. And, you know, we're moving in that direction, I think, in the next six months or maybe a little longer. But I don't know if changing the minds is even possible for some people. So there's going to be some hardcore people that you're never going to be able to reach. And so looking at changing the minds of those who are on the fence and looking to expanding, you know, the number of vaccinations, particularly in, you know, older kids, for example, would go a long way to making sure that we do interrupt transmission. I think one answer to that question you raised, Andrew, was this weekend in the Wall Street Journal, Larry Brilliant, a few colleagues wrote it a very interesting sort of thought piece around we're not going to get to herd immunity was their argument, you know, the, because of variants, because the children are not included and because we're going to have 
you know, 13% they estimated refusals and there'll be some folks hanging back. So we got to prepare ourselves for that. And their argument is we need to do, this is getting back to something Jen was saying, we got to redouble our effort on surveillance and containment right now. And uh, we need genomic sequencing. We need the contact tracing, detect, isolating. We need testing uh, of a level, both molecular anti-antigen tests, serology, sewage testing, sequencing. We need testing, 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 and a system of this in order to do that. And we're going to be refining the vaccines and therapies. So it sort of says we're going to have a complicated world with a lot of digital notifications and certification added into that. And I think that's likely to be kind of the world we enter, but it's going to be tough to put all of that together. Well, is it? I mean, are we going to be able to get people to, you know, have certificates that prove they're vaccinated and are places going to be able to enforce whether they can enter the premises or not based on that certificate? This is this is going to be a it's already a question, but it's going to be a big one. You know, all the governments and many international bodies are already looking into this question. Some have already announced that they're using such passports. Others, like the U.S., are exploring what that would mean, you know, actively looking at it. The the president has asked his team to do that. And as I mentioned, you know, WHO is looking at this and it's going to happen. I think the question is, there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences of this and, and challenges. And can those be nipped in the bud? Probably not. So everything from privacy issues to there's going to be patterns and who's shut out from being able to access these certificates. So it'll be discriminatory. Yeah, it, It's likely to, to leave certain groups out um, for sure. And so how do you how do you go about creating a system that really is able to to accommodate everybody that that it can? And how you know, is, is this used just for international travel or is it starting to be used? Like, New York State's exploring it. So for people to go to actually you know, public spaces. You can see how how this, in theory, might be a great thing, but in practice, I think could could really be quite fraught. So, but it's the the train has left the station on it, and I think the big need here is to try to make it as best as it can be because it's it's happening. I don't think it's going to stop happening, and I think it may even set a precedent for other vaccinations where you know we've had these you know our little cards that we carry around periodically. If you're likely to remember it when you're when you're traveling, I think this is this could change a lot of that. I think there's a couple of certainties, though. One is there's no question that we're going to move towards certification for international, right? And and that's going to move fast. Then there's going to be a big debate about domestic travel and domestic access to theaters and places. And there's going to be a question around mandatory vaccination in certain jobs where you have very vulnerable populations, right? Nursing home employees and this sort of thing. And And we're going to see private sector employers in certain sectors making decisions, right? Universities are going to make pretty tough decisions, I think. Nursing homes are going to make tough decisions. The travel industry, I'm not sure what they're going to do, but I would think we had uh, Scott Kirby from United on here a few months ago, and he said, look, this is my private position. It's not an industry position, not the position of United, but every employee of our airline needs to be vaccinated, and we need to be able to certify that. So... I see a big domestic set of wrangles unfolding mm-hmm. and people in the digital stuff, the digital apps didn't go very far, right? In the last year, there was a lot of false starts. And On a the lot contact of, tracing, not, not yeah. really all that helpful, but um, this is a different animal, I'd say. Yeah. 
Well, it's working in Israel. I mean, it's working in Israel, right? And Israel is requiring it, you know, not just for travel. You know, Israel's not letting anybody from the outside in right now. But you, you can't go into a movie theater in Israel without your, you know, vaccination passport. And, you know, yes, Israel's a smaller country and, you know, people, citizens there are compliant and there's a lot of, you know, solidarity, but it works there. There's a national consensus. Right. Yeah, I, it, the system is is just wholly different than than ours. And so, when we're talking about internal passports, we're we're going to have to wrestle with some of those same issues around federalism that have have you know characterized this challenge all the way. So, well, and freedom, and people people wondering if the government's monitoring their movements. All of and- that, yes. So a lot of that's going to happen, and. Frankly, one thing that is going to, you know, that that is a big change, usually when we're talking about immunizations and mandates and things like that, it's for kids. There's a lot more familiarity with this about about kids. You know, you can't send your kids to school unless they have certain immunizations other than the exceptions to that, but not for adults other than for healthcare workers. So it's really going to be a big, a big change. It's changing the landscape, I think. But isn't this exactly the same thing? Like if your kids can't go to school because they don't have their vaccinations, why are your parents allowed to go to the office if they don't have their vaccinations? That, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think this is challenging the place that we've all, you know, the country has gotten semi-comfortable with immunizations for kids to go to school. Yeah. And that was done as an intervention to great, to get immunization rates up and to protect kids who generally are the ones who are most vulnerable to the diseases that our immunizations work against. COVID is a totally different thing. It's really, it targets adults much more than kids. And we don't have a system that is about mandating adult vaccination. So the passports aside, this is going to be a whole new ballgame. Yeah. And I'd also say that like Steve, think there will be a cascade of mandates coming through, particularly around private you know, institutions. Universities are an important example, especially as these vaccines move from an authorization, emergency use authorization to actual full approval by the FDA. You know, some of the hesitancy around mandates comes around the legal questions about whether you can mandate an authorized vaccine rather than a fully approved vaccine or a licensed vaccine. And, and we can expect that licensing to come through for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in particular in the next, you know, months, certainly. So will that change the way that employers think about mandates? I think it probably will lead to a cascade of more mandates. We're running towards the end of our time here. Let me ask you what we ask everybody who comes on. And you were on before, so you, you've heard this question before, which is, okay, today we are in a very hopeful period, but we're still in the midst of lots of uncertainty as you as you've outlined for us in considerable detail. So where do you see the greatest hope right now, looking forward here in the United States for the next year to two years? Josh? Well, the greatest hope is that these vaccines are going to be available to all. And we are, I think, uh, going to open it up to children to be vaccinated. And we will achieve some meaningful level of immunity, population immunity in the coming, you know, six months to a year. And that means that it opens up the possibility of sort of resuming economic activity and social activity at something like we saw in the past. We're going to have to navigate these bumpy roads of mandates and, you know, we're going to have to keep an eye out on variants. We're going to have to maintain some level of restrictions, maybe masks and things. But, you know, it's 
great news. This is our amazing tools and we should not lose sight of how amazing it is that we are in this position now and looking forward can be so positive about this. Now, a whole nother question is about the global inequity that we see, of course, and we haven't touched on that, but that is important consideration, not just, you know, in terms of global morality, but in terms of risk to even U.S. national security too. So we can table that for another time. Yes. <laughs> Jen, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I just I share what Josh said. Um, you know, there, I have a lot of optimism. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting vaccinated as soon as I can. And you know, we all know more and more people that are getting vaccinated. And I think that you know, just reflecting back on how how challenging the last year has been to be at that point is kind of amazing. And to be looking ahead and know that you know, unless unless things get out of hand, and I, I'm really still very focused on us moving in the right direction. You know, schools should be mostly open in the fall. And there probably will be camp this summer. And next year, we will be spending holidays with family. I think some things will, will change potentially permanently, whether you know, putting aside the vaccine passports, mask wearing, I think, will be a much more common practice in the United States and elsewhere in certain environments, maybe winters, maybe airplanes. That's not a bad thing. And so there'll be some adjustment to that. But I really do think if, if we can vaccination rates going up, we will start to experience what Israel is already experiencing. Um, and they are moving towards maybe relaxing some of their mask mandates because they've achieved such great levels of vaccination and are seeing cases and deaths plummet. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the great work that you both do at your great institution. We'll be having Molly Ann Brody come on at the end of April to talk about some of your your new new data at that point on rural Americans. We're really looking forward to that. Andrew, last word. Thank you all so much. As Steve said, the, the work you're doing, the surveys, the data, everything, the analysis couldn't be more critical. Thank you to you guys and to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Great to speak with you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs>